Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 79 of the North Meet South web podcast. That was our intro music right there. It was that quick. Yep. Hey, so uh, we were having a quick convo before the show started. And I thought maybe we should just pick up right where we left off. Yep. What do you think? Let's do it. Nice and easy. Okay, so let me give let me give some context here. We're talking about you're never gonna guess. They're never gonna guess. They'll never know. They'll never see it They'll coming. They'll never know what it is. Nope. All right, are you ready? We're talking about then ping me. Okay, folks. So here is sort of some of the stuff we've talked about. Uh, let me let me just lay some groundwork for you here. So it takes some time for a task to ping in, right? It may be that your task is running for a while, maybe a long running task. It may be that you've got some queued jobs that are running previous to the job that's running to uh, ping into us. And so what we have in that case is before we mark a task as running late or missing, we have a grace period. This is quite common in uh, these sorts of situations. We say, give it uh, one minute, right, to ping in. Mm-hmm. In some cases, you might give it more than that. So you can configure this up to, I think, 15 minutes late. Just don't do anything unless it's 15 minutes late. So what we have is when your task is initially set up, we look at the schedule that comes through with cron and we set a next run at timestamp. So this is when it should next run at. Then what we do is we look at your grace period and we say runs late at. So we will add your grace period to the next run at timestamp and we will then figure out when we should be checking to see if it's late. So we have a job that then runs in the background and checks to see if there's any tasks that are running late. And if they are, then we raise an alert to say, hey, there is a problem here. Something Mm -hmm. has gone wrong. And so an alert gets saved in our database. Now, the other interesting piece that we have to this is it's common also that you might have a job that if it fails once, heck, if it fails twice, maybe it's not even a big deal because it's kind of doing the same thing Every yeah. time I have plenty of these jobs where it's just like, hey, look through this directory. Like a horizon snapshot. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Horizon snapshot. That's a great, that's a great one, right? So that's actually a perfect example. Let's just run with that. So if there's a horizon snapshot and it fails once, and you know, it runs five minutes later and it does the same thing, and then it runs five minutes later. And does the same. If it fails twice, don't who cares? Doesn't matter, right? No big deal. Mm-hmm. So what we don't want to do is we don't want to alert every time it fails. If it's not a critical job and you're okay with it failing a couple of times, we want to say, don't notify me until there is a, I'm trying to remember what, what we even called it, what the actual name of it is. Sorry. What's that column name? The column for how the many tasks? consecutive alerts. Consecutive, consecutive alerts. Thank you. Consecutive failures or consecutive alerts, right? Uh, allowed consecutive alerts or something like that. So you might say, we don't want to actually alert you until that hits that threshold that you've set up. Let it yeah. fail two times and the third time alert us. So the thing that we've kind of been wrestling back and forth with is, do we, like, how do we track that? How do we, when it fails, do we actually write an alert to the database or don't we? Do we just ignore it and say, okay, well, we'll figure it out next time and then increment a column called consecutive alerts, how many times it's failed in a row, right? And so the solution that we've kind of come up with or that Michael came up with is to say, yes, let's go ahead and create that alert in the database. But we're going to add a new column to the alerts table, which is called suppressed, which then would say, okay, we're going to record this as a failure. We are going to suppress that alert so that it doesn't notify you. Yeah. So I think that's kind of where we left off. Yeah. So I guess 
I guess I've implemented this. You've implemented it once, which was the original just storing the values. Mm-hmm. And then I implemented it a second time where I was not just incrementing that value, but resetting the next run at, which was we had some issues during the week that meant that one of our two application servers in a load balanced environment wasn't able to make a HTTP request out. And so I thought there was something wrong with then ping me. So I was trying to fix then ping me to make sure that it was correctly not recording duplicate alerts and things like that. And it was at that point that I realized... Because we only allow one alert to be raised on a correct. task at a time. There should, there should only ever be one alert at a time. The, the, like you don't want to get a task that failed and then it fails a second time and you get another email and then it fails a third time and you get another email. We want to kind of control that so that you don't get an inbox full of notification emails, right? Because that just gets annoying. And it was annoying because I was the one that had an inbox full of emails. And so <laughs> I, I left it broken so that I could figure out what was actually happening here. And as it turned out, the first thing I found was that we were not handling that correctly, the consecutive thresholds. We were just, every time we got a failure, we would increment the value and then we would, if necessary, raise the alert. Now, the problem with that was that we should consider consecutive failures on the task schedule, not on our check schedule which means that we will check every minute to see if anything is late or timed out or whatever. And then we and what we were previously doing was incrementing the value then, which is not correct. If you have a task that runs every 15 minutes and we're checking every one minute, if it fails and it's not due to run again for 15 minutes, it's still failed, right? It's not, unless we get a task finished, it's not going to correct itself. So the next time we check to see if the task has started, for example, within that threshold period, if it's if it still hasn't checked in from the previous time, it's still going to be failing. So yeah, so every minute you're going to get a failure. Basically, correct. Once it, if if it fails because and the reason why it fails is because we say it's next. Uh, or I'm sorry, it's runs late at is in the past. So it runs late at in the past. We raise an alert for it. Say it failed. A minute later, we're going to check it. If we yeah. haven't done anything with that value, it's going to still be in the past. Correct. So we're going to raise another alert, and a minute later it's going to do it again. So you'll have three alerts now with three minutes. So basically what that would mean was anytime any task failed within three, if it didn't get it done within three minutes, you're going to get it. You're going to get a notification. Yeah. Not three consecutive failures. It, it actually was three consecutive failures, but the only reason why they were consecutive failures right in a row is because we're checking for it every minute. Correct. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and this is why the the first thing that I did to to revisit it was to basically figure out what the next schedule is that it should run at. So if it, as I said, if it's supposed to run every 15 minutes, if it fails, we don't want to say straight away, oh yeah, it's it's another failure because it's not. We're not expecting it. The task is not expected to run at all. So the failure shouldn't be carried through straight away. So this is where we then came in and uh, I rewrote that functionality to make sure that it actually accounted for the next run at when it was checking that threshold. And so it would say, okay, we've got a failure, but we haven't reached your configured threshold of consecutive notifications or consecutive failures. So not only do we increment the counter, we also need to reset the next run app so that we don't check to see that this has failed again for another 15 minutes or another five minutes or whatever that schedule is. So that was step one. And then you had said something 
that sent me down another path. You, oh, that's right. You had said there was a couple spots where we were updating. Yeah, there was a few spots where we were updating the next run at, and a few spots where we were updating the consecutive alerts, and they were just kind of. It was starting to kind of grow tendrils into these other yeah. spots of the application. And it was really difficult to kind of like centralize that and say, where is this happening? Yeah. Where, where is the spot where that's like? So like, what it looked like to me is it looked like a future era of debug. Where Where is this happening? Where is this update actually occurring? Yeah. So now I have to go search for all the spots where I see the column name of consecutive alerts or something, right? Yeah. And so we were looking in a few different places like because we've got the hierarchy where there is an execution, there is a task and a project. And so if the execution failed or the execution timed out, we would need to set an alert for that. And then we would need to reach up to the task and say, okay, the task is responsible for calculating the the consecutive failures. And so it needs to then also be triggered to calculate, have we got another failure? Do we need to notify the user? And if so, notify the user and then hit the project and say, hey, project, you need to move into a warning status because you're no longer healthy because there is a failing task. So um you you know you pointed that out and you were said you know there's there's three different places where we do this and we do all these calculations and all this kind of stuff. And so I sat down and I I started going about improving it and I figured rather than one thing triggering the next we would just fire events and have something listen to the events. And I started running into some issues and I messaged Muhammad because uh, he was up at the time and I said, you know, what's the go here? How how would you approach handling these events? And Mohammed, who does lots and lots of development with Laravel, for those of you who don't know, he's Laravel's number one employee. Numero uno. Numero uno. And he suggested that, because uh, I said, oh, something weird is going on here. When I run this, uh, I, I use the artisan event colon generate command. Yeah, sure. And sure, what that yeah. does is it will look at your event service provider and it will generate any classes that don't exist, which is fantastic, mm-hmm. except you need to pre-import them into their their resting, you know, where, they, where you want them to be. So that would be an app events task was started and you would have app listeners should notify user, right? And so you would put them into your event service provider, importing those namespaces as though they do exist. And then you're on PHP artisan event generate, which that. is... Which is cool, except when you forgot to forget to import them, in which yeah. case Laravel will then generate those events inside app providers because it's generating them relative to the namespace right. of the of exactly. the class. And Muhammad said, I honestly don't like the magic of event generate. To be more honest, I don't like the concept of events commands for the win. And I said, huh, that's interesting. So he's sorry, because- sorry, sorry, to be clear, he said he doesn't like the idea of events. And then he said, period commands for the win correct okay just wanted to make sure and i said you know it's kind of tricky because in a couple of places uh, we, we have a couple of places that an alert could generate right it doesn't just happen in one place it could happen based on the executioner it could happen based on the task um, and he said in that case you would dispatch a command and the command invokes a, the command invokes a pipeline of actions and that way you can see what will happen and, and the command is pushed and you have the added benefit of being able to just run that command um, or dispatch that job manually if you wanted to see what was happening and so my wheels started turning and and this pull request that I'd made that was, you know, recalculating the next run out to, to correctly handle the consecutive failures went from like a 10 file, 12 line change to a 95 file, 1700 yeah. yep. deletions, 1200 additions pull request. Yeah, it was a and, big one. And I went deep down the rabbit hole 
And I think the, the nicest thing about these command pipelines is that they're discrete. You don't have to go into a class that is firing an event and then going to the event service provider to see what is listening to that event and then you lose visibility over that because it's then Correct. possibly dispatching it's, other yeah, events and, and it's a nest. So what I ended up doing was was heeding Muhammad's advice and and looking at some of the options. And essentially, we now have a, a job, three jobs, one that is raise execution alert, one that is raise task alert, and one that is raise project alert. And inside there, we just define the thing that, that needs to alert, so an alertable. And then we pass that into the handle method and the handle method basically does a new pipeline and passes through, passes the alertable through that pipeline of five or 10 or whatever different action classes that are responsible each for just doing one thing. And it's like two or three lines. So we've got right, a task that says, tiny, yeah. yeah, so we've got one that essentially just says ensure task should notify. And if the task shouldn't notify, then we increment the... Um, the the consecutive Number threshold counter. Yeah. We raise a suppressed alert, so we have some trackability that the alert occurred, and then we return false. And the rest of that pipeline doesn't execute, which means it doesn't trigger the next thing in the chain. So in in the thing that you'd mentioned around, you know, executions knowing how tasks um, need to fire, which then means that the tasks need to know how projects fire. All we do is we just say like run through all of these action classes in the collection pipeline. And then at the end, if we get to the end, fire this thing that says raise task alert. And then that goes into another class and you can follow that execution path. And you know that within this pipeline, all of these steps complete. And when it gets to the end, it runs this one. And then you can follow that to the next place and, and do the same thing all the way up to where we get to the project. So it's completely visible. Yeah. There's no nothing head, no hidden. hidden you don't yeah. have to. It's, it's, a, it's a discipline thing that you know inside any of those action classes you don't fire an event so that it like goes off that straight and narrow it's like this does this does this does this does this if at any point you need to bail out like as i said in the example if we don't need to know we just return false, false and it will stop processing the rest of that pipeline which is fantastic it gives us the ability to consolidate our check commands down to like three lines like go and find everything that is overdue and for each of them go and dispatch this command those commands can now go on a queue. And then it handles all yep. of it. Yeah. That's the so commands nice. can go on a queue. So Previously, nice. they weren't on a queue because the, because we were firing events. We needed to make sure that the events were processed in the correct order. And if you throw each of those events and the listeners onto a, a queue, you can't guarantee that they're going right. to fire in the correct order. Correct. So with dispatching the job that runs a pipeline, you can put that entire job on the queue and it'll just spin through each of the actions. So that all happens in the correct order. Um, as I said before, you can run that job in isolation whenever you feel like. If you needed to reprocess something or whatever else, you can just hit that job and off it goes, redispatch it, and it'll do what it needs to do. If And testing is really good because we can test each of those jobs in isolation and for all the different scenarios. So we could set up a test scenario that is essentially a task that must alert and it'll go through the entire thing and then we can just fake the the dispatch of the the next step so in an execution we would test that an execution got through the entire pipeline and then it dispatched its raise job alert and with the expected parameters and so we don't need to test the next step of that process in there so we've got that like unit test scenario but then we can say okay well here's a task 
that is below the threshold and make sure it bails out at the right point. And here's a task that already has alert. So make sure it bails out at the right point. All that kind of stuff is now really easy to test and gives us complete confidence in the individual pipelines that they're doing what they're supposed to do. And then we have a feature test or an integration test, whatever you want to call it, that is responsible for running the artisan command. And then we check everything through each of those steps. So we, here is a task that we've set up to fail. It dispatches this job through the artisan command. And we know that it will do all of these steps for the execution, then do all these steps for the task, and then eventually do all these steps for the project. And we know that it's going to send a uh, an alert to the user and we can you know do a mail fake to make sure that that, or a notification fake and make sure that that gets dispatched. So it's something that I'd sort of seen in passing, but I never really had a use for it. And now that I've, I've had a look at this and I've, and I've refactored it a couple of times because, you know, the first time was just get it all working, make sure the test pass. The second time was tidy a few bits and pieces up here and there. And then the third time, which is what you reviewed yesterday, was the, the refactor that was like tidying things up and making it a little bit cleaner and removing some of the duplicated if statements that I had in actions and move them up into the alertable itself. Because we're using efficient UUIDs that are stored as binary, we can't actually pass them through the the queue pipeline. Yeah, that was an interesting part. So, so that was a little bit weird, right? So, I don't want to run you off track, but let's we can come back to that, I suppose. So we'll talk about those efficient UUIDs in a second yeah. here. Um, so, you know, we had to do it this way, and it meant that the easiest way to check if an alertable, which is just a generic alertable, was of a particular type. And so we need to see like, is this alertable, which gets passed through a generic update status action? If it's if it's a, an execution, we need to set this, the, the status to these values. And if it's a task, we need... So we I was doing like string checks to compare the class, like because we don't have an instance of the model. And I didn't want to resolve the model out of the database unless I absolutely, absolutely had to. So there's no point in doing an instance of check for this thing if we don't need to get it out yet. We can just check is yeah. the class that we passed in of this specific type. So that tidied that up. And and just moving that kind of stuff into the alertable, putting in some convenience methods that like resolve a project because for a execution, you get the project via the task that the execution belongs to. Yeah. But for a task... Well, the task belongs directly to the project. So, you know, it's it's avoiding breaking the, the law of Demeter and making sure that you're not reaching from the execution through the task to get the project, but just saying, um, hey, execution, on the project, do this thing. And and having a consistent interface in the in the code to do that. So um it was it was it was a good bit of fun and getting all of the steps in the right order and making sure everything executed meant that once I finished doing all of the execution checks, all I needed to do when I did the task checks was replace the five or 10 lines of code I had in there with a single, like each dispatch raise task alert job and passed it the correct actions in the correct order. And all of my tests were immediately green. Like I didn't change anything between those two steps because I was just the correct way to write Because I was just composing. Right. I was just composing the actions into the order that I needed to to provide the functionality that I needed. And the only thing I had to do in any of the tests was go through and delete anything that was making assertions against the notifications and the events because then they don't exist. Like I, the only thing that exists in our event service provider now 
is two listeners that listen for the user registered event because we do some stuff with that. Yep. Um, but there is nothing else in our events of a service provider. And I, I feel a lot more confident in what we've built and, and in the functionality that we've got as a result of that. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Hey, um, during this process, did you get a chance to look at that uh, Zangle um, blog post by Jesse Shutt? Uh, I did not, mostly because I'd already figured out what I wanted to do and I wanted to stay focused. And I ended up going to bed at, after midnight as it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no worries. Because so they were using the cool a pipeline like a lot interface like- or something, which I couldn't find in the framework. And I don't think... I only had a quick flick through it, but I don't think they actually said anything about creating that interface themselves. They have a package. There's an open source package. It's called Zangle Pipeline. And so the only thing that it does, which is a little bit nice, is it gives you... So you know how you have... um, With the pipelines, you, you pass the item through the pipeline and then you have a then statement at the end, right? Correct, yep. Is there also like an unless or something? That you can chain on that will that will fire in the case of a failure. The, I don't think so. The then is there purely to execute the pipeline. So if you don't call then, as I found out, nothing happens. It won't run any of that pipeline. So it's like do all these things then, which is why that in a couple of scenarios we've got like then, and it just returns a short closure that returns true. Right. Because you need something yep. in there that kicks off the pipeline process. Got it. So the uh, the Zengle pipeline, it does does similar things. It basically structures it a tiny bit differently, but it gives you some really nice extra little features. Like you can have, like you basically set a response. You say response equals, and then you pass it through their special pipeline. Uh, you have your traveler, which is the item that you're passing in. You have your pipes. Mm-hmm which is what are your classes that you're going to pass it through. And then you have used transactions so that can be true or false. But then at the end, you have response and you can tell if it passed or if it failed or you can get message or you can get exception or you can get whatever. There's a couple of different things that you can mm-hmm. do. So you can, like at the end, you could say, if it passed, do this. If it didn't pass, do yeah. this, right? You could You can kind of have that extra fork there at the end so it's it's interesting in any, in any yeah. case, it's nothing that it's nothing we have to do. No, but fortunately, it would be cool to just take a look. Fortunately, at it. in our scenario, it's either you bail out at some point through the pipeline, and you're done, yeah, or you kick on to whatever the next thing is. In in which so that at the lowest level for an execution, it will kick on to raise a task alert because everything happened here that necessitates an execution having an alert. So now we need to say, okay, well. If the execution is in an alert status, then the task must be in alert status as well, and then and then yep. that and the, and the project and, yeah correct, well. and then that job is responsible for figuring out what it needs to do, and it's not necessarily the case that the project is in error status. Coming back to the consecutive thresholds, if we have not breached our alert threshold, then all we would do is we would increment the counter. Well, actually, the first thing we do is make sure that there isn't an active alert. Then we increment the counter and then we go, you know, if we shouldn't notify, then we raise a suppressed alert, which is just for trackability. We have an alert here that this thing has has gone into a, a dead state and then we return false. And then we don't have to worry about the rest of that pipeline processing, which would involve um, logging a, an alert that then triggers a notification that then triggers the, the project to move into a, 
a warning status. It just stops there. Yeah, that's cool. Hey, in talking about this, I've also had another little tiny epiphany, which is that we shouldn't allow grace periods that are longer than the amount of time between runs. Right. So like if we're looking at the cron schedule and we can see it runs every five minutes, it would make no sense to allow them a grace period of 10 minutes. Correct. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. then what's going to happen is it's going to say, yeah, right. It's going to say like <laughs> you, it, it would be really it would be very odd. Yeah. Right. If you say it's supposed to run at eight o'clock and then you said, OK, it runs late at eight ten, but then it's also supposed to run at eight oh five. It would that would not. There's well. there's it like, yeah, there's some scenarios there where you might expect it intermittently to take five or six minutes to run. But if you're using without overlapping, it doesn't matter. So you might say, I want this task to run every sure. five minutes. And 10 times out of 12, you know, it's, it's running every two hours. 10 times out of 12, it runs in less than five minutes. But the first run of the day, the last run of the day, we know takes a little bit longer. So through the beginning of the day, it's it takes like five minutes to run. At the end of the day, it takes ten. That's probably a bad example because you're talking about a shorter shorter period of time. Even so, you could say if you're using without overlapping, it doesn't matter as much because you you know that it might take longer, and it depends, I guess, yeah. on what the task is. And this is this is where we're constantly walking that fine line of like how much do we try and infer about the users and what they do and don't want to do. Because at the moment, we don't have any data really to say that this is the way that things are. And it may be that, you know, users know the best what their application is doing and they may know that, sure, this is without overlapping and sometimes it's going to take longer than five minutes to run. We would certainly report that in the UI if, if they breach any of those thresholds and that's where the, the usefulness comes in. If they're If you're going to say this thing runs every five minutes but allow it to take 10 minutes to run, it may be that it doesn't matter that the task overlaps. Like it might not pick anything up that it that is consequential as opposed to something that runs every five minutes, overlaps. And, and, you know, we talked about it previously, I think on the the last – oh, no, you and I were talking about it during the week around what if you're processing like achievements or something and it gets to 80% of the way through the task overlaps and it starts processing those same achievements again because it hasn't finalized the yeah. report or whatever. Um, right. Right. So yeah, it's, it's tricky. And this is that, that fine line we walk about, you know, if we have a, a task that had previously failed, but then it reports in a successful skip, well, do we report that to the user or do we, and at the moment we're just resetting because the application pinged and said yeah i was expecting this thing to skip and so i have skipped it and at the moment what we're doing is we're taking that previously failed task which hadn't breached a a consecutive threshold and we're saying okay well it failed before but it hasn't breached that threshold and now it's skipped and that's a healthy status according to us because it yeah it is a fine line around what is and what isn't an error and what we you know what we we can't really know that necessarily Yeah, we can't really know that necessarily unless, I mean, with this new failed event, we know a little bit more, but um, yeah, there's a new failed event that was introduced, but that's only on like 7.19. 7. Yeah, so yeah. anything before that, we don't know. Yeah, so that's an interesting one to talk about, but we can maybe save that for next time with the uh, with as far as like the skip tasks yeah. and kind of, and a lot of it does have to just be like, it's a judgment call, Correct. right? It's a judgment call. Hey, I want to get into uh, another item real quick here, and maybe this will be 
let's see, we're already at 20 minutes, 28 minutes in. We'll see. We'll see how this one goes. I had posted earlier on Twitter, and I just think this would be interesting to get your take on. Like, I would th- I think this would be interesting. And there was a lot of people who had opinions, which I love that. I, it's so fun to, like, hear other people's ideas and learn from those. But the, the question was, not the question, the statement that I made uh, was I linked up an article uh, that was outdated, which I was, I honestly didn't even, I wasn't, I didn't look at the date. I'm going to try and find it real quick. I should just go to Twitter and look at it. But this site is actually, if you go look at this website and I'll, I'll come up with it in a minute. Um, they actually have some really good stuff on there, like some really good suggestions on ways to make sure that your interface is friendly and, uh, they do a lot of research. Okay. Yeah. It was called stop password masking. It's by the NN group, nngroup.com. Um, so check that site out, honestly, check it out. It's, it's pretty good, but basically here was the tweet. I'm using plain, plain text inputs for passwords from now on. We are going to be implementing this in one of our products soon and in then ping me if I can get Michael to, to agree. Wink face. Okay. So a lot of people had problems with this. So I'm going to let you have the first volley at mm-hmm. this. So password inputs masked or not masked? No, they should be masked. Now, Here's here's the key piece of information you left out of that. Now, without cheating, without <laughs> cheating, and looking at all the responses and all the I'm other not looking stuff, at that. I want to I want to hear because because oh you yeah you're like because before the show you were like yeah definitely always mask always period no exceptions and so I don't want you to get any of my ammo here. Don't be like sneaking Look, in on me. Here. I want I you you started a firestorm with this original tweet your original tweet was like we're just we're not going to use this and we're never going to yeah we're never yeah, masking never this. masking passwords and what you actually were trying to achieve here was not a password you were looking at a one time code that could be emailed to someone or could be posted to them in the mail that they can only type in where it's not something that they know and it's not something like you want to get them to be able to get it right Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the um, no, you're you're correct, and it's kind of like you're, Notion. You are correct, although it's the same as Notion. Like they Go give ahead. you the the magic password links, and they send you an email mm-hmm. with the three words or four words or whatever it is, and then you have to type them in. And I'm all for seeing that kind of stuff because that's not something that you're feeling from a password manager. It's not something that you know. It's not your stupid like password one password that you type into every single website you sign up to on the internet. It is a unique piece of information that is assigned to you, and that I think is different than an unmasked password field, like an actual password input. It 100% is. It's 100, it 100% is, yeah. So like if we're making it real clear, like when you log into your Apple account or whatever, they send you a message on your phone. And, and your iPad and your iMac. Code, and that's, <laughs> yeah. And that's in plain text. Like when you go to type that in, it's not a masked field. It's but it's two-factor authentication. To this sure. is the whole something you have it's and exactly something right. you know. Right, right. So what to be clear, what we're talking about, what I'm talking about in my original tweet, the thing I was thinking about unmasking was that. But I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't realize that's what it was. It took it took other people kind of coming out and talking about it for me to recognize, oh, you're right. That actually isn't a password. Yeah. That's more of like an access yeah, code. You're right? talking about using a so, password so that being, input type, but not actually a password. Mm-hmm. It, right. It wasn't a password. Correct. So I've actually unmasked that and we don't mask that mm-hmm. anymore. No big deal. So to be clear, in those cases, we're using an access code. It is completely appropriate to not mask that. We would both agree on that mm-hmm. point. Agreed. Okay. So then with that being cleared out of the way, if we're actually talking about a real for real password input, you would say that never unmasking no. that. 
Unmasking that would never be appropriate. No. I would not. I would always have that masked because like with the two-factor authentication, you have already typed your secret password and the number, the six-digit number or the three unique words are totally random and they're no good to you without the other. Notion is slightly different in that Mm. it is your only means to log in, but you have to initiate that and that code goes to your email. Right. In the same way that like your thing, it's a paper form that gets posted to the user that they type in. With with two-factor authentication, even now, the six-digit number that, you know, that cycles every 30 seconds, that I've never seen that implemented in a way where that input is masked. Because you've already you've already typed in your secret password that only you know. Or your email or whatever. Or your email or whatever. Like you've already typed that. That is something you you know. And then you've got the the two-factor authentication, or is the other way around? It's something you have, something you know. So one of them is the thing you have, and one of them is the thing you know. So the password is the thing you know, and the two-factor authentication code is the thing you have. So that just gets given to you without without you typing your password first. The two-factor authentication code is anyone is, is useless. Sure, sure, okay. So, but we're, if we're talking about actual passwords, uh, you, you would still maintain that it's never a good idea yeah. to not mask those. Okay, okay. So, so fair. That's that's where you said. So the article that I was reading, basically, their two arguments were this: um, it's a usability problem, specifically for mobile devices. Now, the one in particular site I was talking about doing it on, eighty-five percent of our traffic is mobile. Uh-huh. So uh, typing and typos are difficult. Like typing is difficult on a device, and typos are common, right? But it, that also is true for desktop users as well, who aren't particularly adept at using their digits to uh-huh. type, right? That's a lot of people nowadays. So when you make it difficult for people to enter your passwords, it you have two problems, right? One, if it's masked, users are going to make more errors. Therefore, they feel less confident, so they may give up in logging in your site, right? That's that's one possibility, okay? The second one is that because they feel uncertain about typing passwords, they're more likely to employ overly simple passwords or copy and paste passwords for their computer. Now, this was at the age, I think, before they were password managers, which is why everybody was like, this, this thing is completely out mm-hmm. of date. Like, password managers solve all of these problems, right? Here's the deal. Not everybody uses password managers. Well, that's an education thing that we should adopt. We should be educating our users. Well, maybe. No, we should be edu- even maybe. even banks now. They like here is your thing, right? Here's your bank card and here like our one of our big four banks makes these stupid ceramic rings or whatever. But even even the banks here which are typically way 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 behind the eight ball, they're coming up with ways to protect the user that doesn't involve making their passwords worse. They don't always get it right. No one is going to go and buy a ceramic ring when they've already got an iPhone or an Android or something that can do, you know, tap and go or that they've got the the codes on there, right? And you say it's hard and everyone's smart and that's fine, but we got this far. And, and I don't like, even think it's that not people. everyone's smart. I don't think that's fair. I think it's like, you know, my parents' generation, they don't even know what a password manager is. Sure, but you just, right? they, they don't you set it up sure. on there. And the is. thing is, you set it up, it generates a password for them. Even like, I don't know about Android, but I know iOS will generate passwords for you and it will store them for you in your browser. Mm-hmm. And and it'll hook into your apps and most reputable Unless, apps that yeah, you want. Here's your... the problem too with that. Like you have an iPhone user, but they use a Windows computer. So like my parent, my mom, she uses an iPhone. Save password does nothing for her because she generates it on her phone. How does she get it to her Windows machine? It's useless. That's fair. That sounds like a problem you who cheaped out so on like a computer but bought a $2,000 phone. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. Hey, so all I'm saying is it's not as simple as people like to make it sound. Sure. Right. They're like password managers solve everything. It's like, yeah, maybe if your only audience member is like developer community, maybe mm. that's the case. But there's a lot of people who don't use password managers. So that was the first criticism, which I get like, yes, password managers solve a lot of this problem, but not everybody is a password has a password manager. So with that being said, um, people who are going to make more mistakes or like whatever, you know, maybe you unmask it. Now, the the big a big other side of that that people had a problem with with unmasking. So, well, let me ask you, like, what would be your problem with not masking it? Like, what's the big risk to you for like not masking a password field? There's no direct risk to me. I think it's it's taking a step backwards to do it that way. I we've we've spent you know not we as in you and I, but we as as an industry have spent years and years and years getting people to think about security and look for the green padlock and and all of that kind of stuff. And now you're going to go, well, oh, you know what, bugger it. You don't need to have this thing that someone else can't see. And I know that Amazon does it uh, where you can click like the little eye and it wide and they... It's actually unmasked yeah, by default. Yeah, it's unmasked by Amazon. default, which really That's irritates me because it's like, <laughs> I don't want to be able to turn it on. I want to have the the security implicit i don't want to have to explicitly say i don't want someone looking over my shoulder now it's not common that someone's looking over my shoulder don't get me wrong but the 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 default the explicit the implicit default should be security first and like amazon's a multi-billion dollar company and they've done probably the research and they know that maybe that's the correct approach but amazon is also a an organization that has billions of users and they probably know that the kind of people that are shopping on Amazon probably aren't necessarily the most technically adept people. Exactly. Which is kind of my point, right? Because it's like, depending on the audience of your product, like it it might actually be worth it to unmask the password field because it's almost definitely more beneficial for people who are typing in a password. Mm -hmm. Almost definitely. Now, there are some exceptions to this. There There are some people who brought up some really good points. Okay. CCTV, right? You're on a subway or something and like you're typing in the password for your Amazon, whatever. If somebody's recording that or, you know, if somebody's recording that, they could get your password off of your phone. Like or if you're on a crowded space and you need to log in and people can see over your shoulder and you're, you know, you're on the subway, whatever. That could be a problem if you're in a crowded space. Um, If you're on a meeting, if you're on a call on a meeting, Mm -hmm. right, a recorded screen and you have to type in your password and it's unmasked. Well, that's screen sharing. Super frustrating. Um, By the way, FYI. If you're typing in your password on a recorded screen, if you're typing it in, you can still see it anyway. It doesn't matter <laughs> because this this the character appears and then it blanks out after that, right? So you're still not safe, FYI. Um, but there were some good points, right? Also, shoulder surfing is like a big mm-hmm. one, right? If somebody is like sitting in your office and like watching over your shoulder, or whatever, they could also get it. So there are reasons why it doesn't necessarily make sense for them to be unmasked. Um, and and those are some good points. All of that to say. I think there are some situations where it does make sense to not mask them, even in a situation where we know our users are technically savvy. For instance, on your create password screen, it actually wouldn't be that terrible to have it unmasked by default. Well, that's where the confirmation because you're coming. creating a password. Well, yeah, I mean, it can could. you type it yeah, wrong that's twice by accident? Maybe. Right. I get you. I get you. I hate password confirmations, by the way. If I could just nah, see it. I, I hate it. No, pre- see, this is the that. thing. I hate email confirmations. I don't want to type my email twice. I can see it. I can see what I'm typing in there. 
I don't need to confirm what I can see. If I don't read it, then that's a me problem. And that's why email verification is a problem, is a solution too. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to talk passwords. Up. If you didn't have to verify it, you just take it, you, you look yeah. at it and you see what you typed. People don't pay that much attention though, right? And this is the thing. This is why people, yeah, that's, I, I and get this that. is I get the opposite that. problem to me. Like they put the, the double confirmation for the email address and then the, the, there's no double confirmation for the password. Like, I don't know. Fair. Okay. So here's, here's where I actually ended up at because uh, Graham Campbell made some really good points. Okay. So he said that Firefox unmasks it. He said, so I was basically, I was trying to come up with a solution. Mm-hmm. I was trying to come up with a solution that would say, okay, if it hasn't been auto-filled within two seconds of arriving on the page, then that means you're not using a password manager. And so you're going to be typing it in. So unmask it then, right? So look at it and see, are they going to be typing it? If they're going to be typing it, go ahead and unmask it and then allow them to mask it yeah. if they want to. So unmask it by default and then give you them like, the option. You right? like making but strange said, inferences about users that you couldn't possibly I, know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It was it was like a, you know, it was like an off the wall sort of solution, yeah. right? I get what you're saying. Um, but basically what he said, what when he brought up Firefox was like, wait a second, it unmasks it by default. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I've never me. seen that. And he said, no, what it does is he said, if it auto fills a password, like your password generator, your password storage would, if you focus on the field, if you actually click into the field, then it unmasks it, which makes total sense to me. That makes way more sense to me. Now, here's the reason why you're looking at me weird, because I guarantee you never pass on, you click on, you never click on a password field that's auto-filled. Why would you? Huh. Let me try this out. Where can I go to sign in? in a Let's private see it. Tab? Yeah. Right, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll it. do it. I'll stream it so you can all see me tell my password. Oh, boy. All right. Let's. I, well, I'm not on the stream <laughs> no, right I'll now. Wait, I won't do it. It's okay. So if I go into Netflix and I go to sign in. All right. Let's see it. The moment of truth. And I don't have my one password enabled in uh, private mode. Oh, no. You're going to have to type it in. I hope you remember your password. Yeah, I have no idea what my password is. You can't make any mistakes. <laughs> Add-ons. Where do we even do this? One password. Manage. Permissions? Oh, great. Now he has to like enable. I have to figure out how to use my thing. Run in private windows. Here we oh, go. No. no, it's fine. I've got it. Okay. So if I click refresh here. Okay. Here we go. All right. Go here. Go to one password. And I type my password. And I might even get it right. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm, uh, I've been struggling typing my password on this new keyboard for about a week. Uh, you know what? If it wasn't unma- if it was unmasked, you would have no doubt. Like you would know immediately if you typed there. Not at all. <laughs> I'll just yank in your chain. Okay. So okay, if I sorry. autofill, right, so let's see. Nah, I'm clicking in the field here, and it's not. It gives me an option to show my password and hide my password once it's typed in, but it's not like clicking on that input doesn't pr- present it to me in plain text. And here's what he says: In normal workflow, when I visit a login page and it is autofilled, the password is not shown. But I can see it if I want by clicking on the password field without any dirty hacks, right? So this seems sim- this this seems like a really good compromise mm. to me. This seems like if I have a password field, um, I should be able to see the password uh, really simply only by clicking in on it. I think that would be a I think that would be a very good compromise to say if you're clicking in on the input field, it's very likely that you either are trying to change it or you're something's wrong, right? You, like. It's possible to auto-filled the wrong password, yeah. right? So if you focus in on that input field, you could show it. You could unmask it, right? So here's, I mean, I've talked about the things that they've said are are bad about masking it, right? The benefits would be, hopefully, um, 
better or or less errors for your user would be the would be the ideal mm-hmm. scenario, right? That that would be the the hopeful solution. Um, so anyway, I just thought it was interesting. A lot of people immediately said, absolutely not. You should always mask them. Security, security, security. These are probably also the same people who would have said, yes, you need to change your password every six <laughs> months or every three months or every whatever because it's super yeah, secure. Yeah, just whenever I get the and notification also, from have I been pawned. And then I just go, oh, I don't yeah, remember right, signing exactly. up for that website. And I just go and close the account instead. <laughs> yeah, and so they've also... Uh, said that that's not a good idea right so don't do that anymore right so all i'm saying is there's there's it's worth it to question stuff sometimes Mm -hmm. right like it's worth it to kind of like go through the exercise of saying like yeah this is a convention but is it actually like is there merit to it like or is there room for for some flexibility here right so here are the things that i came up with um don't hide access codes so for one-time uses don't hide these values they're not generated by user they hold no danger of being reused always unmask those um, if you're on a create page, creating a password, always show those on the create page for me. So I'm not typically going to be in a situation where this is going to be a problem. It also eliminates the need for a confirmed password page, right? That's my second conclusion. My third conclusion was, um, if I have, um, if I started as a password field, but I change it to a text field when they focus on it, right? So that's like a hybrid approach. My guiding principle would always be though, let the user decide yeah. smart defaults. But always have hide and show controls. Always, regardless of what mm-hmm. situation you're in. If you're auto, if you're auto unmasking it, give them the option to hide it. If you're auto hiding it, give them the mask. Give them the yeah. option to see it. Right. So hide and show. I would. I do. think there's um, hide and show. I would do. Hide. I would do by default, and I would never reveal it automatically, because you do not know who is in the room with that person typing their password, and you don't want it. You don't want to be responsible for the phone call or the support ticket or the complaint on Twitter that I was typing in my password and someone was in the room and when I finished typing, it just appeared. Like you don't want to be the person dealing with that. So no, no, no. It would start. It would appear immediately. They, if as soon as they started typing it, they would see that it was there. I mean, yeah, but so would anyone else. Unless I guess they're looking there. at their fingers. So I would, I would not ever like I would empower the user to make the decision, but don't ever make the decision to show the password. And I know that Amazon does that and I don't agree with it. Um, at least they give you the checkbox there that you can, if you're paying attention, you can untick it. Um, but I, I wouldn't. I would make it very obvious if you're going to give them the option to, to reveal the password that it's happening and that I wouldn't do it for them. Here, here's what I would say. So, so a couple things. Two more things. Number one, I think that the amount of good that it would do to unmask it in most cases would vastly outweigh the amount of damage that was by done. what I typically I, I think that that's probably by true. what measure by, by what measure it, are you saying that most people would benefit from that I mean it's the same measure that I'm, I'm saying, saying most, most people, people that are typing most people that are typing in a password if they're typing in a password they would vastly benefit from having it unmasked I mean they're using the Especially same website across 50 user. websites they probably know what it is pretty well <laughs> Their password. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, like, yeah, maybe, but the you know typos. It's typos on a mobile phone. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay, that's that. That's that's what I that would be my argument. And agree to disagree, right? So that's fine. The other thing I would say is like, if there's a little eye icon on the right hand side for the mm-hmm. show and hide, that's the biggest pain in the butt. Don't put it there no, because it there. that's where every password manager puts their yeah. little icon when you're trying to autofill, right? 
put put a label underneath or something that says like show password, high password, or something like that. I, I don't know a good pattern for it, but the make it obvious. to the right. Like show password, high password, the I. And uh, the new version of one password, the one password X, that plays havoc with the browser's like autofill dropdowns. And it like sits in front of it. Like the Z index is higher. Yeah. So if you start typing your password yeah, yeah. and you hit down to like select from the list of autofilled suggestions, it doesn't actually go to that. Oh, sorry, it does go to that, but you can't see it because then the one password thing has appeared in top on top of it. Oh gosh, that's which is a bit annoying. Yeah, that is a bit annoying. Anyway, it's not a solved solution. It's not even like a. There's no. It'd be interesting if there was a follow up to this eleven year old article, Jake. It would be. I think this is the follow up. I think we're We're having the follow up. But like, is there anything additional? Like the the update was the release of Internet Explorer 10 in 2013 added a neat feature: view password in clear text while clicking a small icon in a field with otherwise masked characters. So that was 2013, rather. So it'd be interesting to see yeah, if there's... It sounds like Firefox has, some implemented, has implemented some ideas. So like, okay, so just to be clear on that Firefox thing, when you click that, when you click that input field, it, it actually gives you an option to show it. it. When you it click didn't it, for me, no. So I might have just been doing it wrong. No, it didn't. Okay. Okay, yeah. Graham Campbell's a dirty, filthy liar. Just kidding, Graham. <laughs> he must be using something that's... Uh, I don't know. Who, who knows? Maybe it's like a development version he's possibly with i I have no idea yeah who knows yeah possible yep in any case here's what i would predict i would predict that in the coming years you're going to see more of this behavior you will because there's mobile users and there's uh large corporations who benefit largely from people being able to get their password correct first try right and and a largely unsophisticated user base AKA Amazon. Yeah. Right. So all I'm saying is I would not be surprised to see more of these things implemented. You've seen it. Like it's kind of gone around the web. There's a lot of places that now have the show password, but it'll be interesting to see, like, does Amazon ever reverse course on this? Do they ever kind of remask the field? I doubt well, it. I don't know. At the moment it's, it's, it is what it is. I wonder, like, right. I wonder if it's something that only happens on mobile. Like maybe if it's a specific oh, mobile question. thing. Like if I was to, that, that's maybe that's probably a good point. Yeah, I mean, like maybe you only make it for mobile. Let's have a look. Console.aws.amazon.com. Yeah. So when I go to on the desktop, at least for Amazon console, if I go to Amazon.com.au, if I go to the layperson's shopping site and click sign in and type in my, this is riveting podcasting, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, see, on, on yeah, desktop. It, it masks it yeah. on, my, on my desktop. But on... Yep, and then if I do it on mobile. It must be mobile. Yeah, see, mobile, it gives you the show password. There you go. There's your answer. It's not Amazon doing it for everyone. It's yep. doing it's Amazon doing it for people on mobile, which I guess is a nice compromise. Yep. So it's mobile only. Yeah. And they have the big show password right underneath it. All you have to do is uncheck show password and yep. you're done. Yeah. Beautiful. Sounds like a good place to Beautiful talk indeed. about our friends at Fathom Analytics. They're I, a, I agree. Speaking of privacy. I saw Paul Jarvis tweeting this week. Someone was calling him names on the internet or something like that. What? I don't really? yeah. I don't think he shared the uh the name. I didn't didn't provide any context. How's your day going? Here we go. This was two days ago. How's your day going? And someone sent him an email, I assume, or a ticket or something. They said, I'm concerned about your competence. Regards, and then signed. And that was it. So 
Anyway, Paul Jarvis, Jack Ellis, friends of the show. They are the co-founders of Fathom Analytics, which is a very, very privacy-focused uh, analytics platform that gives you just the things you need and none of the things you don't, which also this week I saw on Twitter, some might suggest is a bit basic. But look, realistically, how many people are actually looking at the dozens and dozens and dozens of options that you get inside of platforms like Google Analytics? So Fathom Analytics shows you everything you need to know and nothing you don't, what pages are popular, what websites are sending you the most traffic and more, all from a super fast single screen their GDPR client and their tracker doesn't collect personal data, so you don't need to ask those silly do you accept cookies questions anymore. Every account will start with a seven-day free trial and can be used with unlimited sites and plans start at just $14 a month. However, as a keen listener of this podcast, you get yourself, if you go to usefathom.com forward slash north, a $20 coupon on top of your seven-day free trial, which means that you can effectively get two months more or less for free. Thanks again, as I said, to our friends of the show, Fathom Analytics. Check them out. Use fathom.com forward slash north. Absolutely. Well, hey, thanks everybody for listening to the show. 79 was the episode. If you want to find show notes for it, you can find them at northmeetsouth.audio slash 79. Hit us up on Twitter at Jacob Bennett at Michael Dorinda if you'd like to comment at us or talk to us about why we should or should not be masking passwords. Uh, and then of course, if you like the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. If you'd give us a retweet, give us a share and five stars in your podcatcher of choice. Thanks so much, everybody. We really appreciate it until next time. Don't forget to check out then ping me. We're at thenping.me. We are, I promise this time getting very close to launching. Jake and I spoke this week about our plans on what we're going to do. And we should have some more information about that in the next week. Absolutely. See you. Absolutely. Thanks everybody. Bye.